You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grass withers. The flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So let me just say something first off. Um, those of you who are visiting, you may not be aware, but if you were if you're aware of the church much at all, there's been a bit of a stirrup among the congregation. It was an interesting week, and um, but and so there there is a responsibility that you know they they talk about. Being in certain positions gives you a, a bit of a bully pulpit. You know, they talk about the idea of a bully pulpit, which means you get to, you're in a position of authority. You get to say and give direction because everyone has to sit and listen to you for a period of time. And so you get to set course. You get to set direction. So on that front, I have many things I could say. I have strong feelings. I want to lead. I want to do the job of pastoring. And so therefore, it puts me in a unique position that the only reason I want to clarify this is because I want you to understand what Darren is about and hopefully align yourself with the same heartbeat. My conviction about this worship service is this is not a place for me to make a defense of myself. This is about one thing. This is about lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. I want the gospel to go forward. I want Jesus to be magnified and I want you to be edified, not with my vision, but I want you to be edified by the truth of God's word. What does Jesus say about us? What does God want for us? And so that's why I am intentionally and radically committed to honoring the name of one person. And it isn't Darren Dolacek. It's Jesus Christ. I want him to be honored. And so, you know, let, the, let controversies go on. We'll, we'll have hopefully many more discussions. That's fine. I want my conscience to be clear. That when given the opportunity to speak to you for 30 minutes, I'm going to be about one thing. I want you to turn your eyes to Jesus. I want you to trust God's word. I want you to give your lives to him. I want nothing more than to point you to Jesus. Enough said. What then does it mean to be a Christian when we read 1 Peter here? What does it mean, we discussed last week, what does it mean to be an elect exile? I mean, Peter's writing to these churches, right? The dispersion, five places, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. What does it mean to be then an elect exile? And in the world today, many hold the idea that to be a Christian, just basically you, you affix the label to yourself. And I've heard, I've heard pastors speak in such a way that they say, if a person says they are a Christian, that is basically the standard, the litmus test. If you self-attest Christian by basically any definition, that would mean that you are a Christian. But 
Is that the standard? Is there, is there any way that we can see if an individual is objectively a Christian? Now, this is very difficult ground to tread upon because um, no one can judge the heart of an individual. God himself is the one who knows what is in a man's heart. You can read places like Psalm 44, verse 21. Jesus himself says in Luke 16 that he knows a man's heart. So be certain God does know the heart and he objectively, definitively knows those who are his. But Peter throughout this letter and Paul and his and other biblical writers, they don't seem to have the caution that we often do in discerning if an individual is even close to being considered a follower of Christ. Peter is writing to these churches scattered throughout this region. It's a mixture of Jewish and Gentile believers in these churches. None of them are living a a perfect Christian life. All right, so it isn't that he's able to look at them and say, you're, you are so sanctified, you are so glorious, you are so perfect, you're killing it in so many areas, it's clear that this is what makes you a Christian. You are Christians. If, if that were true, he wouldn't need to write to them like he does in chapter 3, where he tells them not to repay evil for evil. There'd be no inclination for a Christian to repay evil for evil if, if they were perfect, We just read chapter 4 this morning. There's no reason to tell them to do away with living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatries, if they were already living perfected lives. You could assume a, a perfected Christian wouldn't even need to be told these things. So they are not perfect, but yet Peter understands them to be Christians. He writes to them, the elect exiles in this region spread about. How so? Well, in verse 2, Peter gives us three descriptions of the reality undergirding the conversion of all Christians. All three of these descriptions, they modify or they they give some color, some explanation to the current status as described as elect exiles in the dispersion. Now, I spent probably way too much time trying to figure out if the foreknowledge of the God the Father, sanctification in the Spirit, and the work and the first obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling his blood, if that applies to is Peter writing this according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, or is he writing to the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? Because in the English you could lay that out both ways. Not a lot of you don't care about what I'm talking about. But I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, getting my commentaries out, what is this talking about? And it's, you cannot see it as clearly in the English, but in the original languages, due to the way the language is laid out, these three descriptions are applied to them as elect exiles. These are descriptions of them as elect exiles. They are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. What do we learn then from these three designations? Well, let's just look at them in order. First, Peter says, they are elect exiles. They are a part of the people of God, the church, the body of Christ. They are elect exiles, part of the people of God, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God knew in advance, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, they are a part of the people of God. This is astonishing. Now, if you read your Old Testament, 
you know that God has selected a certain people for his possession, the nation of Israel. We talked about this morning in Sunday school, Abraham has Isaac, has Jacob, who becomes Israel, who has the 12 sons, become the tribes of Israel, who then spread out and become this entire nation in Egypt, who are then brought out of Egypt into the promised land and become this whole people for God. They are his people. And so if you're steeped in that culture, you understand who the people of God are, and God has selected a certain ethnic group, Jewish people, to be his prized possession. But Peter who is one of those faithful Jews, right? I mean, you got to try some context to let this blow your mind. Peter is a faithful Jew who knows himself to be part of God's people, keeping the temple service. He is living faithfully. And yet he's writing to Gentiles and Jews, writing to Gentiles, people who are on the outside, and saying that according to God's plan from beginning of time, you are part of his people. He is, he's, it's, it's astonishing. He isn't saying that God, this went wrong, and all of a sudden God decided, let's do plan B and bring Gentiles in. Peter is saying, from the beginning of time, according to the foreknowledge of God, you are part of his people. You're not God's afterthought. The body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, you are his according to his foreknowledge. The body of Christ, the church filled with people from all walks of, lives, of life are there according to the foreknowledge of God. Last week we spoke briefly about election, this idea of the elect exiles, and that's implied here, but it's something even bigger than that. Bigger than just individual election. This, this rescuing of a people according to God's specific plan. One commentator says this on the issue. He says, Nothing is more astonishing than that he should call these Gentiles the chosen of God the Father. Israel was God's chosen people. Theirs was the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, on and on. God set up the boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. How could Gentiles be called God's chosen, his elect? He goes on, think of the answer Peter might have given. He could not deny that Cornelius, that's in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius and his family had been added to the people of God. They had received the same Holy Spirit who had come upon the Jewish believers at Pentecost. But Peter might have felt that these Gentiles were second-class Christians. They had been added, he might have suspected, as a divine afterthought. While many of the Jews did not believe, the Lord decided to admit a few Gentiles on a provisional basis. Because some of the Jews rejected Jesus, we're going to let some of these lesser individuals in. He, you could have expected him to say that. But Peter's answer is entirely different. These Christian Gentiles are God's chosen people because he has known them from all eternity. Jesus Christ was foreknown by the Father before the world was created. And the chosen people of Christ are also foreknown by the Father. Their inclusion in the people of God is no accident, no afterthought, but God's purpose from the beginning. What mighty assurance Peter gives to these Gentiles. As Christians, they are the people of God, not just as Israel was, but in the ultimate spiritual sense, chosen in Christ, those who were no people are now the object of God's free grace in choosing 
love. God is their father, not simply as God was a father to Israel, his beloved son, but as God is the father of Jesus Christ, the eternal beloved. Elect exiles, the people of God, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Our lives often feel so random and so chaotic, but God knows exactly what he is doing. It is no accident. If you are his, it is no accident that you are his. It is no accident. Those who are his ought to rest in that amazing truth. This is who you are, foreknown by God the Father, to be his. They are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And secondly, they are elect exiles, part of the people of God, according to the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, what, what do we mean, what does Peter mean here by this sanctification? Many times we refer to sanctification as the ongoing work, the ongoing work in growth and godliness in a Christian's life. Justification, we use as a theological term. In fact, we mentioned it just this morning in Sunday school. It so, it's so fun to sit in there and hear all these things like line up. But justification is the legal declaration of made righteous. That when a person turns from their sins, trusts in Christ as the sacrifice for their sins, God looks at them and they are washed with his blood. They are cleansed from their sin, forgiven and made righteous in God's sight. It is a one-time legal declaration, justification. They are justified. And sanctification is the, the theological term that we use whenever the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit making you more Christ-like to be conformed in the image of Christ. But that doesn't really work here because this, he's, he's speaking about a past event, elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. This language is more of an instantaneous moment, which is not the way that we typically think of sanctification. So what is being meant here. This is something a little different. These statements modify that they are elect exiles referring to their, con their conversion. And so in what way is our conversion, our coming to Christ, a sanctification? Here's the big reality. If you are Jesus, you are not your own. You have been set aside for him. If you are Christ, if you are an elect exile, it doesn't mean you have a little segment of your life that is saved. I have this part of my reality where I look to Jesus and trust him and then I go on my merry way. It is to be sanctified in the spirit, so, meaning you are set apart. You are sacred. You are set apart, sanctified, made holy. You are God's. You are no longer your own. Your life is no longer your own. If you are Jesus's, your first question, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, your first question probably still sometimes is, what's best for me? But if you're, if you're, Jesus, if you're Christ and the Holy Spirit is working in you, that's at war constantly with the question, what does Jesus want here? Not what do I want here, what does Jesus want here? Because my life is not my own. I'm an elect exile according to the, in the sanctification of the Spirit. I am set apart for Christ. If you are Jesus's, you are not your own. You belong to him. The world hears that as oppression. The world hears that as oppression. What do you, I'm an American. Darren, are you kidding me? <laughs> I am fully autonomous. Nobody tells me anything that I don't want to do. I belong to me. 
We are fully autonomous. The world sees this idea that you're not yours, you belong to God, you belong, and especially, actually everyone belongs to God, but if you're a believer in Christ, if you repent of your sins and trusted in Jesus, you doubly belong to Jesus. You are not your own. It sounds offensive, but Christians know that to be empowering because you know you have a belonging. You know that someone cares for you. You know that you have a place. You know that you are loved. You know that you are looked after because you are set aside for the king of the universe. You are set aside for, for the God who rules over everything. In the same way, a marriage is like this, right? In a marriage, you are set aside for your spouse. And I guess in a sense, that's incredibly restrictive. <laughs> There's a lot of choices for spouses out there, but you pick, you have one. That's incredibly restrictive. Oh my gosh, what oppressive. That's terrible. Why would we ever not just have liberality and just get to do what we want to do? How oppressive. But if you're in a healthy marriage, you know the liberty that that brings to you to have someone that you're set aside for. It makes life beautiful. It makes life wonderful that you have someone that cares about everything that you're going through. You have someone that you go home to. You have someone that cares for you and that you care for. You have some reason to go and work hard and to try to live righteously and someone to love and to serve. It, it isn't, it's restrictive, yes, and if you want to look at it that way, but if you can see the beauty of it, it's empowering and it gives your life purpose and meaning, something to live for. And in the same way, if you are saved by Christ, if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, you are set aside for Him and no other. Not yourself, not anyone in this world, no friend, no spouse even, no parent, no child convicts you or, or gives you your direction. You are His and His alone. You are set apart for Him. We are elect exiles according to his foreknowledge in the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ. Again, this morning in Sunday school, talking about works and faith and what's the place of works in faith. And read the passage in James that's famous about faith without works is dead. But these elect exiles, if you are truly his, there is this reality in your life. You are not made his by obedience to Jesus Christ. It could say that. It could say who are elect exiles by obedience to Jesus Christ, but it says for obedience to Jesus Christ. So not only are you set aside for him, but you now then live in obedience to him. The, the, the works that we do are not done to save us. We do not come to Christ and say, Look at me, look at my good works, here I am. Aren't I impressive? We come confessing, I have nothing. I empty-handed, simply to the cross, I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless to the fount I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I died. Who knows the old hymn? So, but we come with nothing. But then like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says, we then are created in Christ Jesus to, as to, to do good works to do good works. He has appointed us for obedience to him. The Christian life is by no means one made by our obedience, but it is undeniably one made for our obedience. 
Does your Christian life look like this? Resting that God has done it. Set aside, not perfectly, we understand that. There's sin that we wrestle with throughout our lives. But set aside for him. Our desire being to be obedient to him. Will this be done perfectly? No. That's why we see here at the end, sprinkling with his blood. We understand there's this ongoing need for purification for Christ's sacrificial work in our life. We never move beyond our need for the gospel. We never move beyond our need for this truth that the quadrant we used to talk about, we've talked about many times, God made everything, is holy, perfect, and righteous. Man fell and rebelled. Man brought sin into the world. Now the whole world sits under the judgment of God, but yet God in his mercy and his grace sent his son Live the righteous life we should have lived. Die the death that sinners deserve. So that every one of us in this room this morning, turning from our sin, looking to Christ, can be forgiven and made a part of God's family, can be sprinkled with his blood for their purification, the forgiveness of their sins. We could have gone a lot longer this morning into the Old Testament and talk about this sprinkling of the blood that is pictured for us in the Old Testament as what purified the people of God. This gospel, this sprinkling with his blood, is something that we will need every day of our lives. So then how does this help us? Running through those three things in these last few minutes, how does this help us in our lives today? How does Peter's description here help the church of Christ? It helps them because it clarifies the identity with which we live. It clarifies the identity with which we live. Now, identity is huge talk today. Uh, I grew up with having the drum beaten. You can be whatever you want to be. I mean, that was that was just you can be whatever you want to be. And we, if you take up that idea, if you take up that theme and begin to believe it literally and liberally, it is crushing. There are so many options out there for what you can be that it can end up plaguing and paralyzing generations because they have no direction. You can be anything and nothing. And how do you know if the thing that you're wanting and you're seeking to be is the thing that you should be choosing to be? Again, ontological, objective boundaries on our lives they do seem limiting in the same way that we're set apart for Christ. It's, it's in one sense, yes, it is limiting. But knowing where that connection is, knowing that boundary, knowing that limit, then brings, it allows the Christian to live with great liberty, to live with great freedom in the midst of these objective boundaries. They're actually empowering. To know that one action is wrong and the contrasting action is right, that's limiting, but it is also liberating because it frees you up to make decisions on other non-moral choices. I was trying to think of an illustration and I thought of, I thought of Tate. He's getting older. He's growing up. And so he tells me someday, you know, Darren, I really want to be a jockey. I really want to ride racing horses. Kid's already six foot tall. <laughs> That's a terrible life choice, Tate. <laughs> it's not going to work for you. I've just been mean to Tate. I've limited his life. 
I have told him he cannot be whatever he wants to be. You have no future riding racehorses. You're, not, you're too big. It's not going to work. I rode an airplane with a jockey. He, Darla was taller than him. I mean, it's a, it's, that's, that's who's wired naturally for that sort of thing. It's limiting, but at the same time, that he can know, it's, it's empowering. Okay, check that off the list. I don't live for that anymore. It's got to be something else. And so when we can embrace this identity that according to God's plan, I am his. I am sanctified in the spirit. I am set aside for him. For obedience, I have a clear, clear vision of who I am to be. My identity is I am his. And my life is about being obedient to him. That is empowering. Now you can look out in front of you and say, I know where to go next. I know where to go next. This knowing of who we are clears the way for who we are to be. We are, to, we are driven to live obedient to the will of Christ. And in a very real way, this identity clears the way for much of our lives. What are you to do today? What are you to do today? Sometimes this... this you, this idea is meant to say that we're required to have some high-level thought of what God wants for our lives. What does it mean to live for Jesus? And we want this high concept of, you know, this giant, massive, impressive plan. Sometimes that's what's communicated. But what are you to do today? Be obedient to Christ. Because you're not yours, you're His. You're set aside for obedience to Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Sometimes we have this, want to have this high-level insight on exactly what it is that Christ desires for us to do. But as we continue on in the next few weeks in the book of 1 Peter, you'll see that he applies this at a very just ground level. Just very ground, concrete, simple ways in the life of the believer. The question you need to ask is, how am I obedient to Christ today with this next decision? Not 10 decisions down the road, but this next decision. What is the decision that honors Jesus? What is the decision that honors Christ, that is obedient to him because I'm set aside for him? What do I do next? One of Darla and, I's, uh, Darla and my favorite writers, Elizabeth Elliot, she written several good things, but in one book talking about suffering, she was speaking about being in the middle of suffering and difficulty and, and even in good times. And the, the tagline she basically puts in her book is what the Christian's concerned for is doing the next right thing. Do the next right thing. You were saved for obedience to Christ. We may not know every way our decisions will play out in the future, but our role is simply to be obedient to him to honor Christ, to advance his kingdom. And with the decisions that are right in front of us today, because our identity is not that we are our own, but as elect exiles living not at our home, sojourners in this world, we belong to him according to his foreknowledge in the sanctification of the spirit set aside for him, for obedience to Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Let's pray. Father, press this identity deep into who we are. My heart breaks as I look across even my small community and see people floundering for 
in an effort to find an existence, a meaningfulness, an identity, trying to matter in some way. And Father, you have, you have spoken. You have given us a place. You have given us an identity. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, the sprinkling with his blood, you have brought a people and, and bought a people for yourself. We can confess that through Christ, we are not our own. We are yours. Our identity is that I am Christ's. I am yours. And Father, I pray for this specific group this morning, that Father, that identity would just anchor deep in our hearts. Life has many trials. Life has many dark and hard moments. Life has many good and glorious moments. And Father, I pray that through all of them, we would be anchored, that we are not ours, we are yours, according to your foreknowledge in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and to, uh, to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Father, work that in our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.